0: Hello and welcome to a brand new series of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. Would you believe we're on season 10 now? That said, for listeners who might be unfamiliar with all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. I'm delighted to be joined today by the brilliant Jasmine Kaur. Jasmine is an artist, designer and maker who graduated from the jewellery and metal course at the Royal College of Art in 2010. Since then, her practice has encompassed pieces created for gallery spaces, as well as work that's socially engaged. She has described herself, rather intriguingly, as a cobbler. More recently, she has created films and pieces of text which investigate untold histories and notions of identity. They are both personal, detailing her Sikh background from Glasgow, and in some instances to do with this nation's colonial past and more often than not, embedded into all this somewhere, is food. In Everyday Resistance, a commission from the Serpentine Gallery, CORE worked collaboratively with children and mothers from the Portman Early Childhood Centre, based in London's Edgware, and used the micropolitics of cooking and eating together collectively to consider and respond to issues facing the local community. This is art with a real purpose. As well as exhibiting in places such as Mima in Middlesbrough, the Baltic Centre in Gateshead, and Glasgow's Tramway. Jasleen has also lectured at the RCA and Chelsea College of Arts. Jasleen, are you there? I'm here. Great. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks
1: for inviting me.
0: No, it's a pleasure. I mean, was that reasonably accurate?
1: Yeah, really succinct. Thank you.
0: Oh, it's all right. It's all right. Anytime. Um, I've been starting these interviews like this for more or less a year now. I'm hoping not to have to ask this question at some point in the near future, But how are you coping with the pandemic and the virus, both personally and professionally?
1: It's been emotionally taxing and draining. I think we've been super grateful for a young toddler that's been keeping our body clocks and daily routine like really full. And at times that's been really difficult with no other support around. But yeah, we're doing all right. We're doing okay.
0: Good. Have you been able to work during the whole crisis?
1: Yeah, we've not been furloughed. And I think, you know, with commissions that I've been working on, you know, we didn't know what we were doing last year. and Nobody knew the impact of what this was. So there was a resistance to pause anything. So actually commissions have been going on for a very long time it feels and i'm really looking forward to shedding a few of them very soon Mm. yeah
0: so how have you been able to work have you been going to a studio is it over zoom or you know how do you operate
1: i'm back in the studio now um we've kind of got a little rota going with me and my studio mates so we're not in on the same days but commissions that were you know, meant to be working with individuals up in, I'm working on a commission in Rochdale with Touchstones with an arts organisation called Up Projects here in London and we were meant to be going up and running workshops with this group but obviously all of that has been forced online and in some ways like really convenient that I've been able to literally jump in here at seven o'clock on a Monday night and run a workshop rather than training it six hours up north but mm. in another way you know there's a whole load of stuff that's not been possible there's you know a whole lot of stuff that's missing from that interaction that yeah i'm really craving now what
0: kind of stuff
1: the, the eating together <laughs> <laughs> the body language the talking over each other and it being okay you know there's a whole lot of stuff that it feels really formal in this online
0: space you work across many many mediums as i kind of alluded to in the intro you know you've had pieces in galleries you also do work that's socially engaged food has become a focus of quite a lot of your output and i was intrigued by this project that i mentioned that you did with the serpentine which started in 2018 where you worked with mothers and children from the portland early childhood center which is quite near edgeware road it's a sure start center which is one of the better ideas to come out of the new labor era of government many of them have been closed since 2010 but you made a roti uh, with these women it's kind of flatbread and you also created some blankets so why the bread and why the blankets
1: i guess i was invited into that center the portman by the serpentine like you say and the first thing was to really engage in the politics of the site like everything you've just mentioned the closures the cuts what that space provided for the community and who the community are it's a really holistic model of care so a user. Our- who are
0: the community Jasmine
1: there's a huge Middle Eastern community in Edgeware. Right. A lot of them are migrants. There used to be three Sure Start centres in Edgeware in that local area. And now there's only one. So there's such a demand and need for community centres, but there's such a lack and such a kind of constant fear, actually, of like the cuts and the closures by the staff and the the workers there. But I guess the drop-in centre is this like initial point of call. It's this initial place where. People can drop in, you come whenever, you let your kids play, you get a cup of tea or or whatever and it's for the centre to get to know who the community is and what their needs Mm. are and to point them in the directions of other services that they provide like ESOL classes or like the breastfeeding clinic, the domestic abuse services. It's a really human way of caring and I think it was this kind of, they are these uh, all services under one roof type approach that is at risk, I guess.
0: Had you been in a Sure Start Centre before?
1: No, I hadn't. I didn't really know about them. I understood the risk that community centres and therefore community were under, the pressures that they were under. But um, I know them more intimately now through the project, but also through you know the process of that project. I fell pregnant, I had a child, and accessing children's centres in Hackney, where I was at the time, was kind of like daily fundamental things that kind of structured the week or gave me support in some way
0: Mm, mm. did the serpentine give you a brief or why the food why the roti
1: the only brief that the serpentine have in this kind of commission and maybe that's important to mention that i am one of many commissions that are cited in that particular children's center so there's this kind of constant stream of versions of me artists designers being a resource i guess to the center The only brief is that there's some kind of, they worded it as like a toolkit, some kind of material, physical output that would be born out of your time at the centre, hence the picnic protest blankets that Mm -hmm. were an output from this kind of, yeah, a negotiated cooking class that we set up in the drop-in centre over a series of months. We took over the drop-in on a Tuesday afternoon.
0: How many people did you have cooking?
1: It was optional. So people would come to the centre and hang out. Everything was set up on, you know, children's tables and chairs. And uh, you could participate for as long or as short a time as you wanted to. You didn't need to. um, You were invited to eat with us at the end. But it was, you know, there were up to 70 people in the space on any Mm. one day. And what was beautiful about that is that we tweaked it each week, you know, like so... It was important that we were facilitating. I was a facilitator, but we cooked a different bread from that came out of the group each week. So there was not a loaf of bread in sight, you know, such delicious Moroccan bread. It wasn't
0: just roti then, it was all sorts of other.
1: Yeah, I began with roti, but yeah, we cooked lots of different beautiful, delicious breads that were stuffed with cheese and eaten with honey and mint. It was beautiful because dough became this material that we could nurture ourselves with we could nourish ourselves with at the end of this session but it was also a material for play so kids were in bowls of flour and we were there to clean up the mess at the end of the <laughs> few hours and there was also a tension around like how do you turn food into a play material when food is so scarce but we were negotiating all of this stuff as we went through and yeah we were also really interested or i was also really interested in bread because of its politics like we know that the healthiest bread is the most expensive and the most middle class and i was also wanting to create a space that would center the knowledges that were held by the group and the people that were using the center i didn't want to talk about kind of government healthy initiatives or i wanted to talk about the food from your home Mm. you know the conversations we were having around britain's hostile environment and assimilating to Britishness and everything outside of that being an issue you know the way you spoke what you've cooked what the smells of your cooking was like what you dressed like all of this culture was seen as a problem and an issue and I wanted to make a space where we paid attention to that stuff where we didn't try to make anything neutral right so we were talking about specificity not neutral tongues not neutral yeah community i guess
0: i mean you talk about a hostile environment what were the most regular complaints or anecdotes or you know what kind of things were the women talking about
1: so you know after cooking for an hour or so and using a very inadequate kitchen to cook 70 whatever's (laughs) We would sit and eat together. We'd invite everyone to pause and eat together and we'd have a conversation, a more focused conversation. Of course, we were talking all the way through, but I would bring questions. We would write them on big paper. We would translate them into Arabic and we would form little groups and scribe and translate for one another. And the questions and the things we were talking about, you know, they ranged from talking about the impacts of racism, Islamophobia, racism in education and within the state and fears for their children growing up in the city. It's kind of heavy and very real stuff mm. that really what you do with that, what my role is in that. I felt really supported by the Serpentine teen, Alex Thorpe and Gemma Egan. We would go away and debrief after each session and it was never about finding answers. It was always about opening up a space for dialogue, for listening. Listening felt really central to this project. And so, what came out of that, I guess, was, um, or the, of that period of months, the project is still ongoing in it some ways, but um, we were talking a lot about, you know, how these conversations were happening in like a private space. And we wanted to think about becoming visible and taking up public space. So, the picnic blankets slash protest blankets were designed by. Cecilia Serafini with the group and a lot of the conversations and things that we'd been talking about over the months feature on these blankets. And they were distributed amongst the group with the idea that we would come together and join them all up in a public park. Which you did. Yeah.
0: In Hyde Park in 2019. That's
1: right. Right by Speaker's Corner. And there was
0: a genuine attempt to take up space. Yeah. This kind of notion of it being a big space taking event was important to you
1: yeah that felt at the heart of like how do you take up a kind of impolite amount of space you know how do you make a space that feels safe to gather and we kind of in 2019 we trialed them i guess we put on an event we bought loads of food in from the local takeaway in edgier road we invited the community and we hosted a couple of grassroots organizations from the local area to come and speak to and about the issues that were coming up these questions that were coming up within the project and yeah beyond
0: that and you've described food or you've talked of kitchen tables as being sites of resistance in what sense
1: you know something that we were talking about a lot in this project with the mothers we were talking about that thing that was saying about assimilation and how they were talking about how mothers are the first teachers and you know when they go to school when the kids go to school they're going to learn english they're going to learn everything else so like a sense of like you know holding on to something and food and cooking and smell and taste and also how to care for your body like you know what I now call Ayurveda or like you know what has been really gentrified and I can go to my local like whatever organic food shop and pick up a turmeric latte like this was stuff that I grew up with yeah practices of how to heal and care for the body so I guess When I think about resistance, I think about it's a kind of practice of culture in a way of not losing something. And also the kitchen table being a kind of typically in my upbringing anyway, the kitchen was a space where women and aunties and cousins, that's where we were. And it was a very gendered experience. Yes. Mm. But it was also, you know, as I see it now, they were also my feminisms. They were also the ones teaching me. All of the complicated things of what it was to be a woman, the inequalities, but the yeah, a real strength as well of what it was to, uh, yeah, complicated. I don't know. I guess that's what I think of when I think of the kitchen table and who's around it.
0: So is that where your interest in food started?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I say that I didn't get taught how to cook. I didn't learn it. You literally, it's like osmosis. You absorb it in some way. I couldn't write you a recipe because I don't have a recipe. It's something else. It's like, knowledge that lives in your hands it's not in your head it's not in a recipe book
0: tacit knowledge yeah <laughs> can we talk about your background jasmine because yeah. you grew up in glasgow a part of a sikh community your dad owned a hardware store when did the family arrive in glasgow
1: 1950 is the date that i have it changes depending on what family member you speak to but my great granddad moved in 1950 from Punjab, ludiana to glasgow A couple of years after the partition of India, after the World War, you know, there's a lot of politics at play that allow for, well, there was mass male migration from South Asia, ex colonies, you know, it was a labor force essentially. And Mm. he came and started trading. I think he was a door to door salesman at first and probably did a whole host of other jobs in between. But then he called over his son in law, my granddad. Then the family came over, my mum, who was age seven. And then later, my dad, in his 20s, to marry my mum. It was an arranged marriage.
0: Right. I mean, I'm intrigued. What did they find when they got here? You talk to your maternal grandmother in a film you made entitled Ethno Residue. And it seems the family wasn't happy. There was a character called Baiji who took all the money and passports. It sounded pretty horrific. I mean, it sounded like slave labour.
1: Gosh, yeah. So Baiji is my great granddad and... Yeah, a lot of power at play and ugh, a lot of complexities. It's definitely not the, you know, move to the west, have a better life, visit back home or eventually move back home again. That that's not the narrative like that plays out. So, I don't know. I think that generation like or those generations, they and I think this is actually the work of what my generation, the third generation are doing, you know, nothing's been processed at all they've just been labouring, they've just been working, they are still labouring. You know, my dad still runs a hardware shop, my mum still works her day job, but it's not like, um, there's been no time to process anything. And so there's some kind of privilege that I think I feel I've had where I was educated. I also have privilege as a Scottish person where I had free education, right? That's why I went to art school, that's why I went to the RCA, it was free. I was supported to study and I think maybe as an artist, I think I certainly use my creative faculties to process and to be. I'm not a researcher, but research and history and digging into history is something that I continually do. I'm kind of compelled to do it. I can't get away from it.
0: There was something very interesting in that film that you made where you said that home becomes unreturnable, adding, My community's politics resemble less and less our ancestors. Revolutionary became assimilationist. Can we unpick that? What do you mean by that? Why can't you return home?
1: <laughs> Probably can't say right now, but <laughs> we can try to <laughs> unpick it. I'm kind of alluding to traumas, I'm alluding to things that I've experienced and that women in my family have experienced that, you know, there there hasn't been the happy ending or there hasn't been this promise of the West. And there's a lot of complicated family dynamics community dynamics that has meant that maybe myself and other women in my family my mum, my sister we've kind of taken a peripheral position in relation to community or the nuclear the biological family and i guess there's something oh it's, it's really messy and complicated but there's something about you know i've been digging into the kind of roots of sikhi of sikhism and where that comes about And how that comes about and thinking about this South Asian, the Sikh diaspora in the UK today and in the West today in America and Canada. And yeah, being dissatisfied maybe with it Mm. and feeling very separate from it. Although it's been something that I've been deeply connected to my entire life and I consider myself a practicing Sikh. But there's maybe a conservatism that comes along with South Asian identity in the UK You only need to look at the Tory government to get a sense of what I mean by that. It's distressing to say the least.
0: When you talk about the Tory government, you' talking about people specifically.
1: Uh, Pretty Patel,
0: (laughs) one of my local MPs, by the way, in the Essex area.
1: Oh, geez, Uh, yeah, really violent. Like, how do you? It's that thing, isn't it? That saying that kind of sums it all up: skin folk ain't kin folk. And it's like, you know, there are similarities in our the way we visually appear, our names, whatever it is, but there's such varying kind of you know, we're at opposite extremes of politics. And mm. I'm digressing a bit, I'm talking about the Tory government, but I think within my community as well, there is a real conservatism at play. And this kind of, you know, being the model migrant is something that I think I grew up with, right? And I see in various family members. And actually, that's where power sits as well within the community. It feels really out of sorts with like what I see as like a socialist ideology at the beginning of the roots of Sikhism that was calling for a different way of living. It was so deeply socialist and food plays into that, actually, so... You know, one of the things that is still at the heart of the Sikh practice is that there is this thing called langar. So it's a free kitchen. You know, at every Gurdwara, every Sikh temple, there's a langar hall where food has been cooked. And depending on the numbers in the community, there's enough food made for the community, the worshippers that come. But, you know, the roots of that was about caste. It was about the inequalities in society at the time. And it was about sitting down on the same level and eating the same meal. And I kind of love that. I love that that's at the heart of the Sikh movement. Maybe we need to think about... I don't know. I think sometimes it feels like the spaces that I grew up worshipping in were more like silos. And there was a lot of division, caste division, class division at play. So this double whammy of like coming from South Asia, coming from India and bringing all your caste baggage with you and then fitting into a British class system as well. So yeah... It's complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. You also did a book which sat along with the film called Be Like Teflon, which focuses on four members of your family and the importance of food and cooking to them. Each person provides a a recipe at the end of each chapter. I mean, it starts in incredibly affecting fashion, Jasleen. I hope you don't mind me asking you about this. No, not at all. Where you talk about suffering from bulimia at the age of 16 or 17. You describe it as, and I'm going to quote, a means of shrinking, disappearing, a slow suicide. I mean, food must have played a very different role in your life at that point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it was really deliberate to begin Be Like Teflon with disordered eating. I think I was also following my nose a little bit in the way that I always do in my work, where I'm just trying to work something out. And so Be Like Teflon was, I was invited by Panel, a curatorial duo and the Glasgow Women's Library to create something and it didn't need to be a book in fact it probably shouldn't have been a book but it was and i think i was responding to some time at the women's library and what i wasn't seeing and wanting to yeah record some voices right like that book is full of voice and it's not complete by any means it's not an anthology it's four short conversations with women in my life who are of south asian heritage and All of the conversations revolved around, you know, we were eating together when we were recording, we were cooking together in some instances, we were eating takeaway and tooting in another instance. So there was, it was really, I guess it was also a methodology of how to have conversation. I don't think I've really got a clean, smooth answer to what the book is, but I think what I was conscious of was who was it for, Yeah, right? Like who was the book for and What's the next generation of me when they stumble across that in the library or how does it speak to them? And really being conscious of trying to not make this clean, tidy, exotic version of this South Asian Indian woman, right? So food is in there, yes, but it's not like a cookbook that you will find by Mother Jaffrey or mm. any of the other incredible South Asian cooks that have come out of Britain. It's something very different to that.
0: Was it a deliberate, very conscious decision to reveal something very personal about yourself in literally the opening page?
1: Yeah. So I don't suffer from disordered eating anymore. So I think my art practice is deeply therapeutic and I was so desperate to come into voice. I was so desperate to say some truths or kind of, you know, in that intro, I'm trying to figure out like where personal lived experience marries up to these really traumatic, violent histories of partition and how, you know, what's been normalized in my community and how a woman's body is a subject in that. And yeah, I'm kind of trying to process all of this stuff. But as I say, I, it's not an answer. It's not, it's messy. It's sticky. It's the slippery stuff that I, I don't, I don't have clean, clear. It's not resolved. Nothing's really resolved there.
0: Mm. You, you also question whether your mother went vegan as an act of resistance against the men in her life. Is that true, do you think?
1: All I know is that she's cooked for the men in her house. And since she was, you know, married at 16. So suddenly this decision to not cook the food that they were going to eat felt deeply important Mm. yeah
0: (laughs) you describe her in another publication called feast you said that she struggled to fit into the community why was that do you think
1: yeah i think there's this repeat pattern that i can see in all of the generations on both sides of my mom and dad's family in the uk and in india of women being erased and you know when women fall out of favor they're kind of erased from the family. They're erased from the narrative entirely. Their names are not said in households anymore. And in a way, we're all one of them. <laughs> my mum, my sister and me. And so when you don't fit that trope of being the matriarch or like, you know, when you decide to leave the role or resist the role that you are meant to have, then it's a very lonely place, I guess. Mm. It doesn't fit into the community. Yeah. Yeah there's no room for that but what i have found in my later years you know in my late 20s early maybe more in my 30s is that on the periphery you know on the margins there are a whole host of radical queer feminists from my community that i you know that's where i want to turn my attention to rather than these really male dominated bases and yeah ideas of And then for me to try and fit into that is not what I'm interested in. Was there
0: art in your household? When did you discover your interest in jewellery?
1: I don't know if I'd ever had an interest in jewellery. I think (laughs) i that's a disclaimer, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's
0: a lot of education to realise you're not interested in something. But anyway, continue.
1: (laughs) All I know is that I drew from a really young age, like, I have so many fond memories I'm sure everyone does of like having a biscuit tin of crayons and pencils and just losing myself and colouring in and drawing like jumbo colouring in books from the cash and carry and you know and then I can see myself 10 years later doing like 10-hour art uh, they were called hires in Scotland 10-hour art homework pieces and Putting on my headphones and listening to the Pixies or Metallica and just like losing myself in that. It was just pure bliss and survival and what a precious thing. I'm so grateful for it. Art in that sense wasn't visible in the house. Art came in the form of cultural or religious offerings like music. Music was really fundamental and important. Even now it's it's still deeply important to me. I grew up singing. My dad taught me. Singing in a way was his saviour it was a thing that saved him as a teenager and you know I sing and I hope that my son Rai picks that up in some way even just a love for it but yeah going to art school and this maybe more western idea of art was not understood it's still not really understood I mean it's so elusive how can it be understood right
0: did your parents were they happy for you to go to art school no,
1: no granted I was meant to be a pharmacist <laughs> do you know what I mean <laughs> I was meant to be administering AstraZeneca at the moment (laughs) no I understand it too migrant parents built a life from nothing literally and then you know you you want your kids to just be financially secure and we all know the arts is not a place to have financial security so I totally understand it at the same time Mm. yeah didn't make sense
0: and he went on to study jewellery at Glasgow School of Art What kind of things were you making there?
1: I was making bad jewellery that was about (laughs) all of the the things that I think I'm still thinking about. I was kind of, I say bad jewellery because there were like little sculptures that I'd stick a brooch back on. Yeah, I'm so grateful for that grounding in material. You know, I I worked in a jobbing jewellers in the summer. But, you know, you learn how to turn dust, gold dust back into a billet back into wire it's beautiful and it gave me a sense of making that still influences how I approach making something today but I wasn't interested in making wearable jewellery I don't think I was ever a good jeweller I don't think I was ever really thinking about jewellery in my BA I was making work about these like visual clashes that I observed in the houses that we grew up in so like Images of gurus next to ex-hardware shop stock, next to British aesthetics, next to Indian aesthetics. It was, yeah, I was just thinking about those collisions, those hybrid identities, I guess.
0: And um, was the plan always to go on to the Royal College of Art?
1: Um, no, I didn't, I didn't know what the RCA was. It was my tutor at Glasgow that said, you know, have you heard of this place? Maybe you could apply. And, and then it happened. But I mm. had no clue what it was. Even when I was arriving on that first day, I didn't know what it was. I just knew it was like the place to go.
0: You were on the jewellery course there, but the piece you graduated with and that garnered you know quite a lot of attention, I think, was not conventional jewellery at all. And it started with a statue outside the college of Lord Robert Napier. And statues obviously have been in the press in the last twelve months in particular. But tell us a bit about that piece.
1: Yeah, the, the piece is Lord Robert Napier. It was one of the pieces of work for the degree show, like you say. It came quite late on. I was basically just making a lot of kind of, like you say, cobbled together hybrid object sculptures. Now you you said cobbled yeah, together. Yeah, I know. I
0: never said cobbled together. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yes, your phrase. Uh, yeah, <laughs> cut and
1: pasting. I don't know. It was such an amazing two years. I was just naively... It was the most prolific time of my life. I'm trying to get back to that at the moment. But Lord Robert Napier... So uh, the statue sat outside, it faces Hyde Park, it was right outside the, I could see it from the studios that I was in, in Kensington at the time, and through a little bit of googling I found out that the man on the statue fought in two I was interested in specifically these two Anglo-Sikh wars that he fought in.
0: Was there something that caught your eye? I mean other than the fact that you know proximity, but was there something specific about the statue that made you think I need to find out about this?
1: There's a word on it, it says Magdala, Lord Napier of Magdala and I thought I walked past it literally every day and it was just that kind of chance I don't know why, I don't know why I decided to Google that and then came across this You know, I was so linked to it and that history and kind of thinking about space in London as well. Like I was new to London and I could travel 40 minutes and be in South Hall where I'd go for music class on a Wednesday night. And, you you know, jumping from borough to borough, jumping from community to community and how much power and presence these statues have, but how also overlooked they are. But yeah, they stand for something, don't they? They're kind of really dominating at the same time. And we know how people feel about them after Black Lives Matter uprisings last year. We know how divided that makes us as a nation. But um coming back to the statue, I wanted to tie a turban on the head of the statue. I wanted to I was thinking again about how do I intervene, how do I visually disrupt this thing that we walk past and through the process of trying to figure out how to do that. I discovered that I had to get permission from the current Napier. And then in that conversation, I realised that it would be more interesting to tie a turban on the current Napier. And so I wrote to him and he said, yeah.
0: <laughs> you didn't need to persuade him at all. He was he was perfectly happy.
1: He was perfectly happy. I think, you know, this was like over 10 years ago, right? Like I wouldn't be doing this project now. So I think there was a maybe a way in which I wrote to him or like yeah i think it wasn't undermining him in any way Mm. so i think he felt well he obviously felt comfortable with it i was more in a place of trying to discover something and kind of visually create this image of him with this pink very regal turban on i was trying to create a kind of collision in an image in the same way that i was doing with object making But the portrait was what was presented at the degree show and, and what is the piece of work. But it's, you know, my dad came down from Glasgow to tie the turban and it was that bit of the project that I'm most interested in. Even now, these two men, this meeting point, this kind of like the three of us in this house in Wiltshire, looking through photographs by his great granddad, the man on the statue of his time in India. It's this kind of, that complicated, again, unresolved, but, you know, the stuff in real time that, it's the most interesting to me.
0: Mm. It was a project, as you say, about identity and there there seemed to be a unifying theme to it. I think you described it as a, I'm going to quote you here, a celebratory statement of the dialogue between two communities of different cultures, religions and languages and draws attention to a rich historical relationship and an understanding between India and Britain.
1: <laughs> I don't know where you found that from.
0: <laughs> well, as it crafts, as a matter of fact. Oh no. The work you do now seems more political and rather more angry. Would that be fair?
1: Oh, I wouldn't say angry. I'd say politicised. It's a journey. It's a total journey. Uh, It's also where Be Like Teflon comes in. It's also where all the work I'm making now, it's like, you know, I have to learn all this stuff for myself, right? Like no one has provided this education for me. It's actually through friends now that I find the most enlightening learning that can happen and Yeah I think it's just a process that's what I meant by like that's not how I I still love the work I love Mm. what the work does without the words but I would never be able to make that work now because I would never be able to write that letter to Napier in the way that I wrote it then.
0: How would you write it now?
1: I wouldn't be able to write it he wouldn't want to know me (laughs) it's too raw like again what I was saying about that model minority that kind of veneer of like the happy migrant and it's what Sarah Ahmed writes about you know like being a happy object being an object of positivity I'm not interested in being that there's too much going on to carry that disguise I guess
0: Mm, no fair enough quite soon after you left the Royal College you did your first food-based product or project which was a curry measure for Tala in 2013 basically allowed you to measure ingredients without scales i mean it was a piece of product design really <laughs> how did that come about
1: Oh god i have so many hats grant it's like
0: <laughs> obviously yeah
1: <laughs> so i came up with that idea while studying at the rca you know carl clerkin i was so grateful to have him as a he was
0: your tutor yeah he
1: was a visiting lecturer and I, you know it's so rare to get that kind of level of teaching where they're your friend, and we'd sit down and have hour-long tutorials with tea and Bombay mix.
0: He is one of my favourite people in the world. I think he's. He I a share the love. About him. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. share
1: the love for Carl. Let's just have a moment for Carl. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I guess I was having these conversations with him, these tutorials with him, and the Tala curry measure. Well, the Tala measure. I came across the Cooks measure, which was a design that's been manufactured in Britain for over 120 years and it's a dry weights measure so it measures things without scales and at the time I was just thinking you know the same way that I was approaching making I was thinking of just hacking into it and turning it into another object that would sit in a kind of gallery setting or be an art object but yeah Carl made the provocation of like what if it went into because he's he comes from design what if it went into production And that just got things ticking. It was a kind of series of very fortunate events of me speaking to Robin Levine, who designed for Tala before, speaking to the graphic designers who revamped a lot of Tala's products and then pitching this idea to the director of the company who said, I love it, finish your master's and then we'll look at it. And we did. And so it was kind of me faking it as a product designer. (laughs) But also, I really think of that project as an artist still. Like, yes, it's a seven quid product that went into mass production, but there were so many moments where the project could have just stopped. But there was something about, you know, I really wanted this product to be, I wanted to be hands off. I wanted to be anonymous. I was asking questions about white wall gallery spaces and who participates in that and the work that I make and who consumes that and who doesn't get to consume it and so I know of Tala through my dad's hardware shop and so I was like how I need to work with Tala because they are gonna distribute to Suleiman Cash and Carry in Glasgow my dad and my uncles are gonna go there and see it pick it up sell it in their shops it was this thing about it going full circle that I was really interested in and you know that just asks questions about where art can exist or Yeah, I think I still really think about that as an artist, that work.
0: So it was industrial art, is what you're saying. Oh dear,
1: should we coin that term?
0: (laughs) Don't think I'd be coining it, I'm sure somebody's used that before. (laughs) Okay. The idea ended up being scaled up, and you used buckets in the Sikh temple in Glasgow for a project that you turned into a film called Balti.
1: Yeah.
0: And that was really about preserving tacit knowledge, I guess. Yeah, You've talked about these meals that they prepared before, but this was kind of a way of standardising it, was it? Or or what was your thinking?
1: So that premise of scaling up the measure into larger sizes, exactly. So I guess the tala curry measure, I was thinking about embodied knowledge and there are no measurements, there are no mills and grams and and recipes. So it was about capturing that volume or that amount. And in the gurdwaras, when they cook for, you know, they could be cooking for 300 people, they could be cooking for 3,000 people, at some of the most holy historic shrines in India, they're cooking for three hundred thousand people, right, on a daily basis, and these quantities are not—they're not written. They are, yeah, like you say, they're tacit. They're known in some other capacity. So, yeah, that was in two thousand and fourteen, Balti. So, Balti means bucket. Balti is also your, you know, your local curry house favorite. Um, yeah, I was in a bit of a kind of transition, I guess, in my practice. I was taking a bit of a breather and decided to make this work with no money, no it wasn't a commission, it was kind of like me just doing it off my own back. So we cooked together in a temple in Glasgow, in a Gordwara in Glasgow, and before any ingredient went into the pan, we'd put it in the bucket and measure it and put a line. So you ended up with this series of like measuring buckets that then I would reuse when I Filmed the film when I screened the film I'd cook using those buckets so it was also me just skilling myself up on how to cook for 300 people
0: is that a skill you've used much since yeah
1: weirdly yeah (laughs) which is also why I had to stop doing commissions around food because it was like (laughs) this needs to stop somewhere but
0: yeah (laughs) I'm kind of intrigued do you feel comfortable in the art world it seems to me you seem happier in community projects than the gallery I mean, in the past, you've talked about the problematic space of being invisible and hyper visible in the same instance.
1: I don't feel comfortable. No, I don't think <laughs> there's a whole load of, I don't know what the best word to call it, but definitely imposter syndrome when you don't come from, like, I didn't study art. I teach fine art at Chelsea or I teach art at Chelsea. I, yeah, I'm part of an art world and it's my, I know nothing about art really, but all I know is that. I never felt I was in the right place when in the context of craft. I never felt design was quite right. I was kind of using design to get away with doing stuff. That's what I felt like I was doing. And I loved that about it. And I think Carl opened up that window for me. And then art is just the space where it's like, well, I can do whatever. I can just do whatever and it's okay. But I think there is an art history where I can see myself reflected. There is an art community where I can see peers that I feel in proximity to or that I feel seen in and I think that was a fundamental shift for me in moving from a UK craft context to a UK art context but I don't know I think I'm settled here (laughs) I'm settled (laughs) here but yeah I'm definitely like when you talk about the community projects I, I definitely think about use i guess or like my role i guess or like the role of art when it's such a market and it's resisting that side of art and what its function is or what my kind of function is i guess
0: what is your function in that case oh
1: gosh i don't i don't have a one word answer for that i think at the moment things are quite i really don't know the answer to that i think when i work with people i'm definitely thinking about working really democratically or like Being someone that can bring something from another space into that community, into that group, whether that's money or resources or, yeah, visibility or a space. In that way, it's kind of making connection and asking questions. Mm. When I'm in the studio by myself, there's a limit to how much socially engaged, if that's what we want to call it, how much of that work I can do because it's so involved. You know, it can really only be one project a year at max because it's it's if you want to do it right <laughs> then you need to be able to be really available but when i'm in the studio on my own i don't know art has a different maybe a different needs or desires or don't know if i answered that <laughs>
0: no well no it's fascinating i'm also intrigued whether it was a conscious decision to move into film and to writing
1: no i, I don't think it's conscious as much as like i really just work intuitively and like you know I was making jewelry but even when I was making jewelry I was using non-precious materials or gluing stuff right and then when I moved away from jewelry and not making anything with metal and starting to use found objects I think it's just I'm not I'm not even approaching it like a rule breaker it's just it's what's the best material to use at this moment it's having the freedom to use whatever is necessary I guess I wouldn't call myself a filmmaker. I'm not a filmmaker and I'm not a writer, but words and image and moving image feel like material that's important right now.
0: Mm. You have this body of work, which is obviously concerned with identity. Quite a lot of it has to do with food, as we've discussed. You're married to Ian McIntyre, the ceramics designer. You have a child it's mixed race. I'm wondering how you're dealing with that duality or how you will deal with it in the future.
1: Do you mean with my son's identity? Uh, Well, that's constantly negotiated and in many ways that's for him to for me to uh, support and scaffold a way for him to negotiate that himself i'm not mixed heritage so i can't claim to understand what that is Mm. it's a reason why i stay in london for sure i think rye will see himself reflected in whatever he understands himself and i think london is a place where you can really find community but yeah, it's something that's constantly discussed in our house. Be that, you know, obviously Rai's not discussing it, he's not even two, but Ian and I discuss it all the time. It's something that he is very proactive in being, or has to be, really proactive. It, this was before having a child, right? He has to kind of do certain work that is required for him to be in a relationship with me and for us to think about having a child together and co-parenting. It's just a constant negotiation, I think you know I don't have much family here in London but the family that I find in community is the thing that is yeah another reason why I stay in this mad city (laughs) that isn't always very friendly when it comes to financials and like yeah making all of that stuff work.
0: Mm. And who does the cooking at home Jesleen?
1: Oh fuck I know me isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah that's something I really need to
0: shift But yeah, (laughs) my
1: nephew and I cooked the other day and that was so nice, actually. Yeah, Ian's too slow and meticulous, Grant, as you can imagine. (laughs) Everything he cooks is amazing, but it'll be two hours later. You know, he's a measurer. I'm a chuck it in the pan. So
0: (laughs) (laughs) our hour is basically up. Um, You've been tremendously patient with me. Thank you very much. Final question. What can we expect in the future? Will there be more food? It sounds like you're desperate to get away from food.
1: Uh there's just other stuff to do. It's a really busy year. There's a lot of stuff happening, none of which is to do with food, but where there's some eating of archives and uh, some singing by the water. There's all kinds of stuff happening, but um no food specifically yet.
0: Okay. Well, hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, everything goes to plan, we'll actually be able to go and see some work, which will be extraordinary. Jasleen, that was wonderful. Thank you so, so much for your time. You. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Grant.
0: And to discover more about Jasleen, go to jasleencore.co.uk. As ever, there are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. Just so you know, I've introduced a new tier. So now for only £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening, and please stay safe and well.